I am so completely incompatible in expressing the greatness of our God this morning. We serve a God who reigns in heaven and is sovereign over the entire earth. A God who is holy, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose seraphim fly with, with, with two wings. They keep themselves suspended in the air. With two wings, they cover their eyes to not gaze upon the glory of the Lord. And with two wings, they cover their bodies so that the Lord does not look directly upon them. They recognize their complete inability to be in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. That God transcended heaven. He came to earth as a man. He waded into this mess, this world of our sin. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, and he died on the cross in our place. Has your mind begun to comprehend the God that we serve? He is so great, so unspeakably, unimaginably great beyond anything we've come to discover. And this morning, I'm supposed to come and try and point you guys to him. God have mercy on my soul. Let's start it off with a word of prayer as we seek him for help. Oh, Jesus, you're a great God. Lord, we need you. Lord, get me out of the way. God, would you extol your name through your word this morning? God, would you open up our eyes to see you for who you are, to stand more in awe of you and to worship and to proclaim your great name. You are an awesome God. You deserve the very best that we have to give. Lord, you are worthy of our everything. God, help us to see it this morning as we go through the text. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so as you guys know, we have been going through the book of Acts. Now, Acts is written as kind of a second part to the Gospel of Luke. It's written by Luke, the beloved physician, and it follows what happened with the disciples after Jesus ended up ascending into heaven. And what you see is kind of a two-part series to the book of Acts. You see in the first 12 chapters, you follow the Holy Spirit's work through the apostle Peter and the other disciples as the gospel goes into Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding area of Samaria, right? The region just north of it. And then as we get to chapter 13, it begins to shift from focusing on the Holy Spirit's work through Peter to the Holy Spirit's work through Paul. And we see the gospel going to that final frontier, the ends of the earth. And so the timeline that we're looking at right now is right around 56 to 57 AD, and we're going into Paul's third missionary journey. It began when he went on over to Ephesus, and he stayed there for about three years, and now we're going to continue to follow him uh, through this third missionary journey today. And so if you guys are able, I want to encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, the reason we stand is we recognize the authority behind what we're reading. This is the living word of God. And my goodness, we need, to, we need to acknowledge that. You can follow along with your Bibles. I will also have the words on screen. So here we go. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the son of Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, uh, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. They went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Metilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went on to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, as we're going through this passage this morning, there is one main point that I want us to recognize as we tackle the text, and that is that God directs his servant through persecution to his people by his power. God directs his servant through persecution to his people by his power. So I want to take a look at the first part of this. God directs his servant through persecution. When we pick up in verse 1, we read that after the uproar had ceased, okay, this gives us a little bit of context for what you guys went through last week, right? Paul is in Ephesus. He's been proclaiming the gospel here for about three years at this point, and Demetrius the silversmith ends up stirring up a riot against the Christians. He's a dude who ends up making idols for his profit, and so the more people who come to know Christ, the less money he makes, and he's not having it, right? So he gets everyone angry, gets them all screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and so they rise up and begin to, to try and persecute these believers here, right? And so that's where we pick up. The, the Christian church in Ephesus is under persecution. And what we see is immediately Paul sends for the disciples and he encourages them, right? Paul is no stranger to persecution. And here he is coming to these young believers in Ephesus, right? who have only been in the faith maybe two or three years, and he's encouraging them in the Lord as soon as this uproar had ceased. And from there, he ends up departing for Macedonia. So got a little map here, as always. Where they're at in Ephesus is right over here along the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. And Paul is making it his aim to head back up to this region up here in Macedonia, where he went on his second missionary journey to plant a number of churches. Now, Paul is not running from persecution at this point. In fact, if you flip back to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So this isn't Paul trying to get out of town because the temperature has been ramped up. Rather, he had decided beforehand in the Holy Spirit, this is where I need to go. Man, I planted some churches up there. These brothers and sisters need encouragement in the Lord, and so that is where he was planning on headed. But what I find it interesting is that this region is an area where Paul is not necessarily popular, okay? People are not necessarily going to be extremely excited for him to come back. And in fact, Paul has been driven out of a lot of these regions. And in fact, the more I thought about it, I was like, Paul's seen a decent number of persecution in his life. And so I wanted us to kind of reflect on this a minute as he heads down to Corinth. Uh, he, when he first came to know Christ, he was in Damascus, right? Going to persecute believers there. While he was in Damascus, there ended up being a plot for his life. 
Show of hands here if people have plotted to murder you before. I'm actually curious to see if anyone... Okay, none of us. All right. I imagine that'd be terrifying. Paul literally, at the start of his Christian ministry, had people who were trying to kill him. He goes on his first missionary journey to Antioch, Pisidia. He ends up being driven out of the town because they don't want him preaching the gospel there. He then goes to the town of Iconium on his first missionary journey where they try to stone him. He ends up fleeing the town. He goes to Lystra. They catch up with him and they stone him in the town of Lystra. Okay, Literally, they thought they killed him. They left him outside. He's on the ground, left for dead. And then as soon as they leave, he gets up, picks himself back up, and goes right back into the city. All right, that's persecution, by the way. He goes to Philippi on his second missionary journey up in this region of Macedonia where he ends up being beaten and imprisoned. He then heads on over to Thessalonica where he's driven out of town in that place as well. He goes to Berea where he is driven out of Berea. And then here he finds his way back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And under this immense persecution, he ends up leaving Ephesus. Are you beginning to see the kind of persecution that Paul faced in his ministry? I mean, I can't imagine hardly showing up to a town where literally, like, I've been driven out of this town before, or I've been stoned or imprisoned in this town before, and I know people aren't going to like it when I show up. But that is the kind of boldness that Paul has, right? That's the kind of boldness with which he is coming and encouraging these believers. And I think we get this to a small extent, because if you guys can think about it, I'm sure there are some places on this planet where you know if I go to that place, I might get into trouble, right? Or, or, or to, as some of us have put it, you ain't welcome around these parts, right? We all, we all have those places. For, for Paul, <laughs> that's basically that whole region. There are churches who love him, who are going to be excited to see him, but there are going to be a lot of people who have driven him out, who are not going to be happy to see him coming back. And so it would take an incredible amount of boldness for Paul to come and proclaim the gospel in this area. He's leaving persecution to go to another region where he's been persecuted. And so he ends up heading up into Macedonia. Most Bible scholars think that what is covered in this one verse could have taken anywhere of up to 1.5 to 2 years as he goes through that northern region of Macedonia, preaching the gospel and encouraging the churches. And then he ends up going down to Corinth in the region of Greece, uh, where he ends up being persecuted further. We see this in verses 2 through 3. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. So he decided to return through Macedonia. All right, so the Greek word that's used here for Greece is Hellas, and it seems to refer to that more general region of Achaia. But it's during this time in Corinth that, again, Jews are not liking the fact that he's proclaiming the gospel, that salvation is now in Christ and in faith in him, and it is not in keeping the Old Testament that they have been given. And so he's, he's calling them to believe in Christ, and as a result, they are looking to kill him. Now, a lot of Jews at this time would be looking to head back to Jerusalem, probably for the Passover feast or for Pentecost. And so this would give them ample opportunity to murder Paul. Because if you're stuck on a boat with a whole bunch of Jews who hate your guts, it's going to be kind of hard to get away, right? So Paul ends up resolving to head back up through Macedonia instead so he can further proclaim the gospel. But the question we have to ask ourselves at some point is, why would Paul continue amidst this persecution? You would think at some point he would get tired of being driven out of towns. He would get tired of being beaten with rods, get tired of being whipped, get tired of being stoned, right? Get tired of having people making attempts on his life. 
why does he continue to endure amidst this persecution? And I'm convinced it's because he discovered a God who is worthy of his everything. Remember, Saul was a man who would have grown up in the Jewish tradition. He would have learned the Torah from a young age. He would have learned about how his God is a holy God who created the entire world by the word of his power, speaking it into existence. Paul would have had a reverence for Yahweh God. He would have recognized God as holy as the God of Israel who brought his nation out of Egypt with various signs and wonders showing his great power. And yet in his unregenerate state, he didn't know the Lord and he didn't recognize that Jesus was his Messiah. And it wasn't until on a road to Damascus when he was literally going to butcher Christians and imprison them that the Lord ends up meeting him, ends up revealing himself to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And ends up drawing Saul to faith in him, removing the scales from his eyes so he could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Paul recognized was that God had saved him from destruction. He thought he was serving God, but he was lost in his sin, and God found him and saved him, redeemed him, forgave him of all of his sins, murdering the people of God, and now equipped him to go and be a servant to proclaim the good news of God's salvation for all mankind. He discovered a God who is great and who is holy and who is merciful and loving, and in his love and mercy saved him. Do we see that same God? Because I think if we would, man, the missionary efforts that we would make in his name would be extraordinary. Lord, open up our eyes to see more of you for who you are, even as your servant Paul did. And so God not only directs his servant through persecution, God directs his servant to his people, right? God has a mission that he is engaging in. God is directing his servant through persecution to his people because they need encouragement. He did this in verse 1 when he was in Ephesus, right? We see him encouraging the disciples. And then when he goes through the region of Macedonia, it says that he had given them much encouragement, right? It's during that time in Macedonia, it's believed he actually probably wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And then he also likewise does the same thing when he comes down to Corinth, edifying, encouraging, building up the church. It's during his time in Corinth that we read about this three-month stint here in verse 3 that he likely also wrote the book of Romans. Again, a tremendous book of encouragement and an apologetic for the gospel itself. And, he, and, and the church would have needed this because Paul is not the only one that's being persecuted. The church at that time was not a very popular group of people. The Romans were trying to get people to worship the emperor. The Jews were wanting people to only worship Yahweh God. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, right? And so therefore, they were facing a tremendous amount of persecution, and they would have needed encouragement, right? They would have needed Paul coming to them and calling them to hold fast to Christ, that he is our life. Don't walk away from this great salvation that you've received. And praise God that we serve a God who not only saves us, and then leaves us, but he is a God who sustains us, right? The saints persevere because God preserves his people. And so here he is sending his servant Paul to encourage them because they need encouragement, as we all do. All right, so when I was, uh, when I was a young lad, uh, age 18 to 22, graduated Gothenburg High School, and I went to college at College of the Ozarks down in Branson, Missouri, and it was during this time in Branson, Missouri that, man, I was really beginning to figure out the college life. I was 600 miles away from home. It was like a 10-hour drive, and I came to college not knowing anyone, 
okay? Uh, the only person I knew was the gal who I knew for an hour because she gave me a campus tour of the place. That was it, okay? So I was feeling uh, pretty alone, got really aggressive about trying to make friends, got really aggressive about my studies. But after about a, a semester, I was feeling pretty discouraged. Um, actually, I was more depressed than I've ever been in my life, if I'm being honest. Um, I remember at one point I was sitting out on this lookout that overlooks this lake in this valley, and I was just weeping. I was like, God, why am I here? Why have you brought me here? I feel so alone. I'm doing everything I can to get connected and to do the best I can, but Lord, I feel so isolated. I feel so cut off, and I don't know if I can keep doing this. And then God ended up sending a brother my way. His name was Corey Ashley. I think I'd talked to him like five minutes before this event. He found me weeping on the point. I didn't know he was behind me. He came up and he's like, he recognized me. He's like, Seth, what's going on, bro? And I, I just poured out my heart to him. I thought, no, man, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I don't know if I should be here. And that brother came alongside me and he encouraged me. He told me, he's like, Seth, think what you have before you is an, is an opportunity, an opportunity to find your rest in Christ, to allow him to strengthen you. I want you to know I'm going to be with you. I'm going to support you through all of this. Like, like we are in this together, but I think you have a, a real opportunity here to be grounded in Christ and to find your strength in him. And he's like, and I also want to encourage you to not throw away this opportunity that you have. Because College of the Ozarks, if you get accepted, they accept 10% of their applicants. You work for the college 15 hours a week and they pay for your tuition. So you can graduate debt-free with a bachelor's degree. And so he was like, don't throw away this academic opportunity that you have. He encouraged my soul in a much-needed time in a powerful way, and I endured, and by the grace of God, graduated with my bachelor's degree. So God does direct his servants to encourage his people whom he himself is saving and calling to persevere, and I am so thankful for that. And what I love is that God is so specifically this great holy God is so specifically involved in the lives of individual people. We see this when we come to verse 4. We read about this man, Asopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and, the, and of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, right? All these men whom God has been drawing to salvation. These guys are really kind of evidence of the Holy Spirit's labor through Paul as God is calling out from among the Gentiles people for his own possession, people whom he himself is saving. Now the men that are mentioned in this context are likely men who are part of a larger collection team who are bringing the offering back to Jerusalem. If you guys remember in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions how he was going to take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem and have them bring it back to them and have it delivered by the hands of some of the elders of these churches. And so this would have been a huge encouragement in the church in Jerusalem because they're literally getting to meet all these church leaders who have come to believe in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. God is, God is moving in individual lives of men to draw them to salvation. These are men known by God, known by name, and saved by him. Just as God has directed Paul to share the gospel with them and to hear encourage them in their faith. Praise God. And so God ends up directing these men uh, in a roundabout way up to Troas. In verses 5 through 6, these went on ahead of us and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And so now Troas is going to be up here just a little bit north of Ephesus. All right, this is a town that originally Paul wasn't going to be in. He was going to sail straight for Syria. 
But because of persecution, God ends up having gone go on this roundabout trip, encouraging the, the believers, and then ends up coming to this town of Troas. Again, God is directing his servant to his people. And I want us to observe the fellowship that they have while they're there. We see this in verses 7 through 8. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Right? And so this is a place where, man, they are coming together and they are gathering together and they are hearing Paul preach. And it says that he is prolonging his speech until midnight. They likely all met up after the work of the day was done. They're getting together as believers and they're enjoying this fellowship and they listen to him preach until midnight. How many of you guys might be a little bit tired at that point? Show of hands. It doesn't stop there. Look down at verse, look down at verse 11. Right? He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. <laughs> These guys pulled an all-nighter. The church was up fellowshipping all night. What in the world would cause them to do that? I don't know about you guys. I really treasure my sleep. Okay, I, you know, If I get less than six hours of sleep, I'm feeling it the next day. And yet this was a church that was so committed to the word of God and to fellowship that they know Paul is only in town for a week. And so they are literally soaking up every minute they have. I think this was a church that recognized that knowing God is everything. It's here that they have fellowship in the spirit. It talks about them breaking bread. This has a context for fellowship in general, sharing a meal together. But it also has context for sharing the Lord's Supper within the context of that larger meal. Here they have the word of God taught to them, right? They didn't have a canonized New Testament at this point. And so the Apostle Paul being there, proclaiming to them the word of God, was an opportunity to feed on the living word of God. And they were soaking it up. As it says in Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of the Lord. And so they were enjoying this incredible time to hear, and they were willing to sacrifice an entire night's rest to soak up every last minute of it that they, every last minute of it that they had. And the question I want to ask us today is, does God mean that much to us? Is His word so precious to us that we're willing to stay up all night to hear it? Does fellowship with the body of Christ mean so much to us? that we want every last minute with each other before we have to go. What does Christ mean to you? If you guys are like me, you've probably grown up in the church. You've heard the word of God from a young age, right? I can read this in Spanish. I can read this in German. I can read this in Italian. I can't actually read it in those languages, but it's written in those languages, right? It is so readily available to us. That I think sometimes we, we become inundated which is how commonplace this is not recognizing the beauty of what we have. Almighty God has spoken, and he's given us his word. And here we have the opportunity to know it, to delight in it, to see our God and worship him. What does that mean to us? What does Christ and his sacrifice mean to us? That we now have this fellowship where we get to partake of communion together, remembering our Lord and how he has saved us. Because the truth is, if you care more about your lunch plans than hearing from God this morning, you're missing it. If you're not getting involved in a gospel community group because it interferes with your schedule, you're missing it. Have you found a God who is worthy of your everything? 
Or are you distracted by things of lesser value? If we recognize God's word for how rich it is, we're hungry for it. We treasure that. If we recognize the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit to love and encourage and to spiritually build each other up, then we want that time together and we prioritize that. Man, are you coming to know a God who is worthy of your everything? Because he still deserves so much greater than what we give him. And so God is directing his servant through persecution to his people and by his power. Final point we got here. Their time together in Troas provided an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. And we see this happening in verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, interestingly enough, this young man named Eutychus, his name means fortunate or lucky. Uh, the Greek word that's used to describe a youth often indicates someone between the ages of 8 to 14. And because there would have been a lot of believers gathered together in this, uh, this third-story room where they had all these lamps lit, he likely just went to the window to catch a breath of fresh air, found it comforting, sat on the windowsill before falling three stories and was taken up dead. And if you've ever been to kind of an old town like in Europe and seen some of these cobblestone streets, right? Three stories, is, it's a decent ways up. And so it's no wonder that if he fell asleep, fell out headlong, right, that this, that this would have killed him, right? Notice that he is, in this case, he is taken up dead. Now, the Greek word for dead is necros. Everyone say necros. It's the same word from which we get necromancy, okay? It means one, according to the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it means one who has breathed his last, lifeless, deceased, destitute of life. And it is used consistently in that context throughout the New Testament. Notice he is not taken up as dead or as one appearing to be dead, but he is taken up dead. And can you guys imagine the terror that the people would have felt in that place, okay? Can you imagine the terror that his parents would have felt in that moment to see your kid sitting in the side of the window fall out. You run down the stairs and come and pick your kid's limp body off the ground. There is not a more horrific feeling in life than what you would feel in that moment, recognizing that your child just died. But what happens? Verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, and like Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, he physically touches the boy, in this instance, pulling him up into his arms, and he restores him back to life. Just like the resurrection of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, the same spirit that worked through the apostle Peter to resurrect her is now working through the apostle Paul to resurrect Eutychus. And the only difference between verse 9, when he is taken up dead, and verse 12, when he is taken home alive, is verse 10, when the servant of the Lord takes him in his arms and announces that his life is in him. It is highly unlikely that Luke would commit so much space in his chapter to an incident where someone, luckily, survived a fall. And in fact, in the first three verses of this chapter, we alone cover a time span of about probably a year and a half. And so, according to Bible scholar David Peterson, the most natural way to read the text is to presume that Eutychus died and was brought back to life. Praise God. Praise, I guarantee you guys, Eutychus' parents were worshiping the Lord that night. 
They have seen God's compassion displayed, right? God hears the prayers of his people. I know a lot of times you're out, you're praying, and you think, man, does God really hear me? He does. He is listening. And here in his compassion, he transcends the laws of nature to take a young man who's probably broken his neck on the sidewalk, lying dead, to breathe life into him and to restore him. No wonder these people were so relieved. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted, okay? Can you imagine being there and seeing this? Because you have the gospel being proclaimed, being proclaimed not in just words, but in power. As Paul literally takes up this young dead man and restores him to life. Guys, this would scare us out of our socks. This is incredible. Only God can do that. Only God can raise the dead. I know we've heard this story so many times, but this actually happened. God took a dead youth and he raised him to life. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? We serve an awesome God. Do you recognize the God that you serve? Do you know the God that you worship? Our God is worthy of our everything. He is not some trivial Sunday morning pastime. Our God is the greatest of all conceivable beings. He is perfect in his power. He is perfect in his holiness. He is perfect in his justice and his love and his compassion. And in that great love, he has saved us from eternal damnation. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die because of some wrong thing that he had done. He suffered and died on the cross for my sins, for your sins, for the sin of everyone who calls upon his name. That high and holy God gave his life for us. Do you know him? Have you seen him? He is a God who is worth suffering for. He is a God worth staying up all night to hear. He is worth traveling the world to proclaim. He is merciful, he is powerful, and he is the entire reason that you exist. Does your soul know that to be true? Because until you discover the God who is worthy of your everything, you will waste your life on things that don't matter. Do you see our God and have you committed your life to following him? He is worthy of our everything. Verses 13 through 16 end with Paul and his fellow companions traveling to Miletus for a final meeting with the elders of Ephesus before returning to Israel. And so again, the main point that I want to make as we go through the text this morning is that God directs his servant through persecution to his people by his power. And that leads to a brief application. Application number one, if you are a non-believer, repent and believe the gospel. God is buying you time to turn from your sins. Every single one of us has sinned against our holy God. This deserves punishment. It deserves eternal hellfire, cut off from the mercy of our God, forever tormented for the wickedness of what we have done. And yet our God is such a gracious, merciful, compassionate God. He came, he lived the perfect life that I could not live, that you could not live, and he died on the cross in the place of everyone who looks to him in faith, everyone who looks to him and believes that he is who he says he was, the, the son of God. 
And as they look to him in faith, they receive his forgiveness, they receive his righteousness, and they're adopted into the kingdom of God to be a son or a daughter of God. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to encourage you, don't put this off. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. But if you are a believer, there are a couple things I want us to recognize here. Number one, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to make following Christ your number one priority in life. He is a God worthy of everything that we have to give. If you are not spending time in the Word to hear what He desires to communicate to you, get in the Word. It is for your good. It is for your thriving. It is for the very purpose in which you have been made to know and have fellowship with your God. Spend time in prayer. Is it so much to come before the holy God of the universe who has saved us from our sins and connect with Him? Get involved in Christian fellowship. Guys, if you're not plugged into a GCG, get plugged into a GCG. God has not given you your spiritual gifts for just your own edification, but for the building up of the body of believers. And man, we miss out on so much life when we do not engage in that fellowship together. Truly, God is in our midst through his Holy Spirit to love and build us up. And if you're not sharing the gospel with those who don't know Christ, ask God to fill you with his love for the lost to then go and proclaim the gospel to them. Because that was every single one of us until Christ found us. And the time is short. Christ is coming back to reign. Man, we meet, may we point as many people to him as we can while there is still time. So if you are a believer, do whatever it takes to make following Christ your number one priority in life. If you're not reading the word, get in the word. Okay, just prioritize that this week. If you're not in a GCG, we have a whole list of them out there. Grab one, find one, get involved in one. If you're not sharing the gospel with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors who don't know Christ, think of one person this week. That you, can, that you can talk to about the gospel. Do whatever it takes to make following Christ your number one priority in life. And number two, don't sleep in an open window. We don't want to have any broken necks in this congregation. All right, let me close this out in a word of prayer. God, you're an awesome God. You are so worthy, Lord, of, of everything that we have to give. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Father, would we be able to say this along with your servant, Paul? God, would you open up our eyes to see more of who you are, what an awesome and good and glorious and self-sacrificing God you are? And Lord, as we behold you, would we be a people equipped to go and to proclaim you filled with your spirit, filled with your love, directed by you through persecution to your people and through your power. Oh God, what you have done through Paul, Lord, you are fully capable of doing today. Lord, would we be a people ready to go out of love for our great God and in compassion for a world that desperately needs him. Oh Lord, we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.